Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. With Mike in London, we're, we're keeping them up late here. So let's get started. Couple couple things to get started. We're going to start on page ten. We've been referring to the to the the pages, and we got to page three, I think, last last Wednesday. So this Wednesday, we're going to start on page ten, which is the most recent page. We really recommend now that we're focused more on the pages that people uh, download the pages one way or another, and I think we'll get through page 10 pretty quickly. And since it's financial institutions and I've worked one way or another in them for for my all my career, I'll lead most of that. So we'll get off page 10 and back on to, you know, we'll work backwards where we get some more input from Mike and Jason. On oil pricing and gas pricing, just a couple of points. One, December 5th was the day that European Union sanctions on Russian oil went final. Also, the day where the U.S. Treasury has instituted this price cap program where cargo insurance is used as a method to try to keep cargoes, ships from leaving Russian ports where Russia gets more than $60 a barrel. Now, it's not clear whether that's going to make any difference. I think this program was instituted a while ago when the Biden administration was worried about gasoline prices, which have come down a lot. So I don't know whether the price cap program, how much of an impact it's going to have. The I would say in talking to friends in the business and people that help run our companies and whatnot, what we've seen in in oil is that the worldwide oil business, liquid business, oil business is incredibly resilient. And despite all the dislocation from the war in, in Ukraine, people who need oil have gotten it. Obviously, uh, refiners and customers in India and China are taking Russian barrels at $30 off or $20 off or whatnot are getting a deal. The European countries have been able to replace the crude that they would otherwise get from Russia by bringing oil from other parts of the world. It, it's all worked pretty well. I mean, it's, it's really a tribute to the industry that's built up over the last century or so that more than a century, I guess, that, that the logistics are really quite remarkable. Even natural gas, where Europe was terribly short of natural gas because of Russian gas being like about a third of what of what it would otherwise be, there still is some Russian gas moving through the Ukraine and through the uh, through Turkey. But 
you know, natural gas, I mean, Europe has now had some cold weather. There's, you know, I'm sure some industrial customers have been curtailed. The substitute fuel to oil is now going down in price. It's all being handled pretty well. Now it's December. You still have, you know, three months of winter to get through, but so far so good. In terms of the impact on the equities in oil and gas, you know, U.S.-based producers, the gas stocks are down quite a lot. There is this prediction that gas prices will be much lower than the curve. The curve is still, you know, futures price for 24, 25 is still around 450. But a bunch of analytic work has said that supply has grown up by two or three beads a day and demand is flat. So consequently, gas gets priced on the margin. We're going to see some $3 gas prices in the second half of 23 before LNG expansions are completed and increase the demand to accommodate the increased production. The increased production is not from the Marcellus, it's from the Haynesville and from associated gas in the in the Permian. And there definitely is more supply than would be ideal. So you own EQT or Antero or a stock like that, you know, it is lower, it may trade lower from here. Personally, I think if if we had weak gas pricing in the second half of 23, I don't believe that it is going to make that much difference because I think the 24-25 price would stay at 450. But that's you know, one man's judgment, and I tend to make investments for five years or more rather than 12 months. So if you own gas stocks, you're thinking about acquiring additional interest in gas stocks, and just, just be aware that what you own is probably going to get a little cheaper if you, you've always wanted to own EQT or Antero or Chesapeake or something, maybe you'll get a little cheaper next month, depending on how the winter weather goes. In terms of macro, the president, uh, Joe Biden, had the best midterm performance politically ever. Now that Georgia's determined for Warnock, uh, no Democratic senator incumbent lost his seat. The Republicans are in control of the House by, you know, four or five votes. So it's going to be kind of an unruly Republican caucus. It looks as though, well, Donald Trump says he's going to run. Looks like he can pull like 35% of the vote in a primary. That may be if he's faced with three or four other people. That may make him look like the winner. He may win the nomination. Who knows? The Biden family, apparently, and the White House staff and whatnot is planning for Joe Biden to announce he's going to run in 24. You would think if Trump gets nominated and Biden is the Democratic candidate, that Biden will probably win again. Uh, What does this mean from an investment point of view? It's not the end of the world. It may not be ideal, but you know, we'll probably have gridlock as long as Republicans can hold on in the House. I don't follow politics that carefully, but I did see an analysis where it could be much harder for the Democrats to hold the Senate in 24. They have more incumbents up. So I, I don't think it's terrible. From a, In terms of the Federal Reserve quantitative tightening, I think it's way underappreciated. Everyone talks about the Fed funds rate. Clearly, the 
that the Fed Reserve governors are going to try to get the Fed funds rate up above the rate inflation, rate of inflation the way they count the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, is coming down. I mean, it's down around five and a half or six percent. So if they can nudge it down a little more, and maybe the Fed funds rate peaks at around 5%. Everyone pays attention to that. As you know, if you've been a regular listener Wednesdays, I am quite a bit concerned, more concerned about getting the Fed balance sheet, which ballooned from $4 trillion before COVID to $9 trillion. Our federal government overspent by $7 trillion during COVID, and we financed $5 trillion of it by having the Federal Reserve buy debt. Now that debt is going down at the rate of about a trillion a year, about 90, 90 billion a month. So far, so good. Uh, I mean, cryptocurrencies collapsed, but I don't think anyone's attributing that to quantitative tightening. So, so far, so good. But sooner or later, withdrawing all this liquidity that was added out of the system is gonna result in someone getting in trouble. There's been a lot of publicity about the Blackstone real estate funds, which are not publicly traded, but open. They marked them up by 10%, and they had to, they had to you know, reduce the capability to redeem because every other public real estate fund down by 10 or 15% with inflation, interest rates, and whatnot. So people started to redeem, and they had kind of a land rush of people wanting to redeem. It's a little worrisome, but I don't think it's terribly concerning. There will be something else out there that gets into trouble as this liquidity is reduced. But it's, you know, it kind of looks sitting here, you know, on the first week of December, it, it doesn't look like there's anything particular. With that, so we reserve a lot of time to get into Mike and Jason's area of expertise. Page 10 is a comparison of financial firms, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers is an interesting company, and Brian and John Jim Goshen are, have owned it for a number of years in their partnership. I'm going to, it's the right-hand column here. I'm going to start with it. This is a very simplified way, this chart, of a, a way of looking at these financial companies because the lines are revenue. Next line is compensation expense, which would what the people get paid. Then the next is operating costs, income tax, CapEx, which is basically not, 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 a, not a factor. And, and that comes to your free cash flow. JP Morgan, which is our largest bank by far, uh, has a, a $400 billion uh, equity market value uh, is trading for about 11 times free cash flow. So that's a 9% free cash yield. All its statistics, free cash flow revenue and whatnot, is down this year. It's same for Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. That's a function of the stock market being down. And frankly, the bond market in terms, I mean, interest rates are up, but bond values are down. Morgan Stanley looks like 12 and a half times free cash flow. They're $13 billion of free cash flow rather than J.P. Morgan at 14 Goldman Sachs is a little more, $2 billion more, $15 billion of free cash flow, apparently trading for just under 10 times free cash flow. 
Are these bad investments at 10, 9 or 10% free cash flow? I don't think so, but I don't think you can expect the free cash flow to grow in these. I think what is going to happen and has been happening is they pay a dividend. JP Morgan yields 3%, Morgan Stanley a little more than 3%, Goldman Sachs a little less than 3%, but as the Federal Reserve permits, they buy in their shares. Interactive is a special case. Interactive is uh, their compensation expense is a much lower percentage of their revenues. Their operating cost is much higher. They're basically a trading platform for hedge funds and active trading individuals. They have free cash flow of just under $2 billion. They're trading in the market for 32 They don't have any debt or preferred. That's about times free cash flow. Now, why would they be 18 times free cash flow and J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs be you know, averaging 10 times? Well, Interactive is more likely to grow, I suppose. This year, with the you know, very difficult stock market, they haven't grown at all, but they've been flat. So, you know, it is a different kind of business. Interesting, but different. This coming week, we're going to look at uh, what we've been doing with these sheets is looking for free cash flow and, and, and looking at different industries. We're about to turn to the software companies, which is page nine, where Mike and Jason have a lot of expertise and are invested. But this coming page 11 is going to be Caterpillar, Deer, Emerson Electric, and Generac. All are Midwestern-based manufacturing businesses. They are all good companies. One of them I've already scanned the 10 Qs and whatnot. I worked on them this weekend. Here's an interesting statistic. Emerson Electric, based in St. Louis, has increased its dividend every year for 56 years. Quite remarkable. But more on those next week. And with that, I'd like to turn to page nine, which is, for those who don't have the sheets, is a comparison of Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, and Oracle. And personally, I've owned Oracle for quite a while, up, I don't know, three times or something, reluctant to sell it. But of the, of the four companies, I would say from this analysis, the least attractive. When we, when we talk about these sheets being an attempt to find cash flow, the leader in the clubhouse is Apple with $95 billion of free cash flow. The next highest is Exxon with $65 billion of free cash flow. And the next is Microsoft with $62 billion of free cash flow. Now, when you buy Microsoft, you pay 30 times free cash flow. That's about a 3% yield. Question is, what kind of growth out of those Microsoft franchises, Windows, Office, LinkedIn, the games business, can you expect 10% growth? Now, for the interim, the, the interim period, which they're a, a June 30 company, so your interim period is three months to 930. Uh, sales were up 10%, but your free cash flow is only up 3%. But this is a, 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 a very well-organized, well-constructed, well-led company. And the other two companies, Salesforce and Snowflake, uh, you know, are different. Salesforce is a large company. It's, it's part of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, but still has not yet demonstrated the capacity to do to have significant free cash flow. Snowflake 
is the most popular, I guess, and certainly in software, maybe overall IPO done in the last couple of years. You know, everyone seems to like Snowflake. My concern, before I turn over to Mike and Jason, is is would I like to own Microsoft at five or six percent free cash yield? You betcha. Will it get to five or six percent free cash flow? Not likely. Have I owned it in the past? Yeah, I did own it many years ago. But when they're trying to compete with uh, with Google in search, I just got tired of them dumping money into search and and I sold it. Big mistake. It's up about six or seven times since that time. Salesforce and Snowflake, I admire them, but I can't get comfortable with them. Why can't I get comfortable with them? The when you take out the marketing and the R and D costs, you kind of chew up the cash flow. And <clears throat> Mike and Jason have been active investors in these kinds of companies. Uh, so I'm gonna turn it over to them to explain how to think about them and how to think especially about the marketing and R&D costs and, and when, when and if uh, they'll get to where they have significant amounts of free cash flow. So with Mike in London, why, why, don't, we, why don't we go Mike first on Salesforce? Okay, perfect. So Salesforce is kind of the, the, the first major cloud player right they they offered this cloud based crm and they've the, the way that most investors and software companies have been run to date is take all of your free cash flow and reinvest it for growth and the thing that nobody saw is how far and how big some of these companies could grow to become right the the enterprise value on salesforce is you know almost 200 200 billion dollars i guess microsoft's much bigger at well over a trillion but the the concept that a crm would be that big was not in most investors minds a decade ago or two decades ago for that matter the wild thing is salesforce is expected to grow 17% a year year over year through the next three years, as far as revenues go. The problem is, and I think that this is the software industry in general is going to face this test. The problem is, is that much like a consulting firm, um, their primary cost is, is people. And you're only really as good as what you're able to produce as product. And one of the ways in which investors have taken the financials of software companies, specifically cloud companies, and backed into intrinsic valuation that they can get comfortable with is by adding back part of the sales and marketing costs and part of the R&D costs. Um, that, with the theory that you, you could scale back that sales and marketing and scale back that R&D and sustain the existing sales levels. So you potentially could repatriate that cash or reapply that cash to shareholders to dividends or share repurchases. So Salesforce is going to be under a lot of pressure. They have currently have an activist investor that's pushing for them to be more cost conscious with human capital being their most expensive single line item and wage inflation being significant and 
everybody sort of pointing to these big tech companies. I think the Twitter files and some of the, the things that have happened Twitter have really highlighted how there has been some level of mismanagement or waste within these companies. I think that will be a challenge to companies like Salesforce to see if they can get their costs under control. You mentioned Microsoft back in the, the Bing search days. Microsoft wasn't the wonderfully well company with with a great strategy that it that it, that it back then. At, at that point in time, their strategy was so far off track, but they were they still managed to produce a decent amount of cash flow because they had this epic monopoly. And you know the world is, it, you know, we see what's happening with the FTC and that they're going after anything that they think is is monopolistic the, the reality is is that certain business models tend toward monopoly and and microsoft is a beneficiary of that one of the downsides to monopoly is that you can end up with pretty gross mismanagement which you know you could say happened during the Balmer year uh, nadell is a much better manager and that's that's proven out in their business salesforce bennyhoff is ceo he's the founder of salesforce if there's any one person that's better to go in and make the hard decisions, it's, it's probably him. So I feel good about that. Yeah. I, Jason, why don't we see if Jason has anything to add on Salesforce? Then I'd, I'd like to get Jason to explain how Snowflake is unique. But Jace, Jason, anything to add what Mike said, uh, Mike's comments on Salesforce? Yeah. One of the things I like to think about with Salesforce is Benioff's been very public with corporate goals since he's started the company and since they IPO'd. He's he's achieved all the goals that he's that he's stated. So I, I think he is committed to operating the business more efficiently. They th- their two last goals that they they set are for Y26, which ends January 26 for them, and they they plan to hit 50 billion in revenue and have a 25 percent or greater operating margin. So how they they haven't said how they're going to hit the the 25% operating margin they presumably are overstaffed like all the big tech companies and from the levels they're at now they it, it kind of seems like they can't hire for the next 3 years unless they do some layoffs now and and clear up some room but i guess you know there's no reason to doubt him he he hasn't he hasn't not achieved his goals at any point in the past so so modeling it out that we kind of that, that's kind of the numbers we're starting with yeah, fair point. Snowflake is greatly admired by investors. It's come down a lot. It was over $300 a share. It's now down around 140 150 but still trading at, you know, I mean, <clears throat> where Salesforce has $32 billion of revenues and Microsoft has 200 Snowflake admitted, uh, uh, you know, a new company, a new entrant has $2 billion in revenue. When you take off the operating costs as far as the R&D and sales, I get, I, I think Mike and Jason say they're about breaking even cash flow wise. I don't know. I, I probably did it in too conservative a way, the too tough a way. I have them still uh, having a half a billion dollar a year cash flow deficit, which I think is probably a little high. Uh, there's no problem because when they were private and when they came public, they raised extra money. 
and they have $3 billion of cash on hand. So they don't have to sell more equity or anything. They are very well financed. What I've never been able to get clear about personally, or personally clear, you know, me clear about is what exactly is Snowflake adding? I mean, they, they, they talk about having half of the Fortune 500 paying at least $100,000 a year of license fees for their product. What, what I would keep asking Mike and Jason, we'll turn to Jason for this, is the cloud providers, the Amazon Web Services, the Microsoft Azure, the Google products, the Oracle products, why aren't they in a position to provide the software to manage data that's been put up in the cloud? But with that, I'm way out over my skis. We're going to turn it over to Jason to explain what Snowflake, uh, what Snowflake does. I believe Jason might possibly have been one of the early employees at Snowflake. So he's really <laughs> well positioned to give us an answer here. I, I should have been one of the early employees. I had the opportunity and, and didn't take it. But what, what they provide is really an easy way for a company to analyze a large set of data. So when we say large set of data, it's it's something that can't fit in an Oracle database, Oracle being the fourth company on, on, on page nine here. It's a set of data that otherwise you would have a challenge just storing, let alone digging through it and finding insights. So... Back in my days working with the government, we, we built all these systems to, to capture large amounts of data like this and kind of find the needle in the haystack or the key insight. And Snowflake pretty much automates that. So you, you hook up your data sources and it you don't have to worry about how many hard drives or how many servers you have. They just capture all the data and provide you an interface into your existing business intelligence tools so that you can analyze that data. Um, so it's, it's kind of from the user perspective, not different than looking at, you know, your traditional Oracle database, which a lot of these, these companies and business analysts have a lot of experience with. So, so from that perspective, it's, it's not a huge jump for them to move from analyzing their smaller, you know, maybe just a customer data set into, into a way that they can look at vast amounts of data collected. So if, if they're talking like all the clicks on your, on, on, Amazon's shopping site, you know, Amazon has their own systems for it, but, but as an example, you know, that's, that's a large amount of data, all the click interactions. So how do you discover patterns out of that and and how people are navigating through it? So Snowflake makes it really easy. Um, Microsoft does have a competing product. Uh, I don't know if they're just not pushing it much, but, but Snowflake was the very much the first, first mover here. and, And they got a lot of a lot of respect. They're kind of, you know, they're everyone's asking for that product and, and no one's really asking for the Microsoft version. And from, from what I hear from the industry, um, I'll, I'll pause there. Mike, do you have anything to add? No, I think, I mean, you, you've got the most hands-on experience. The, the one thing I would yeah. say, is maybe uh, your explanation for why you didn't decide to take the job. I thought <laughs> that was interesting. So at the time, I mean, we, we were building this and a lot of other companies were trying to do the same thing. They wanted to put um, traditional business intelligence tools on top of a big data data set. Um, and their company was named Snowflake. And 
I lived in Colorado. It snowed a lot at the time. Like, who's going to name a business Snowflake? <laughs> why, why are you different than anyone else, you know? Um, bad reason in hindsight, huh? But uh, one thing about Snowflake that that I think the market loves is their net retention rate is, is Mike, if maybe you know it off the top of your head, if it's high. It's like 100%, you know. Oh, I think they, it's... I think they even advertise it as being more than 100%. Yeah, so. I want to say it's closer to 150 so oh, it's, yeah. it's, north, it's north of 160, which is, I mean, that, that's why all these investors love Snowflake because what, what business is growing this fast and is already doing this much revenue? It's, it's spectacular. And you talk to the customers and they love it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, another way we look at it is kind of a new business model. It's instead of a subscription as a service, it's, it's your build based on use. So it's easy to get in and, and as, as we're finding these companies get a foothold in the product and then they start using it more and more and more every year. Just let's close off the half hour. I own Oracle for many years because Larry Ellison, the founder and large stockholder of Oracle brought the America's Cup back to the U S I don't think without his financial support, it would have happened. So I figured, well, I might as well look at Oracle. And what I liked about Oracle was it increased its dividend every year. It bought in its stock. It looked a lot to me like Lowe's, something we discussed last week or the week before. And as I look at Oracle, as of their latest financials, they bought a uh, medical company or medical records company for quite a lot of money. And so... Now, rather than having a more or less debt-free balance sheet, they, their market cap is $220 billion. Uh, their free cash flow is seven, but their debt is $85 billion. And, you know, I a lot of people look at debt times uh, EBITDA, which is before CapEx. I like to look at it versus free cash flow. And uh, as if anyone who goes through these sheets is going to stand out because at $85 billion is 12 times free cash flow. Now, to be fair, they only had, <clears throat> the numbers I looked at, a quarter of this medical records company, you know, it's just their first quarter. And I may be underestimating their revenues and their free cash flow and so on and so forth. But, you know, I've I'm, I'm got a huge capital gain on the stock and I don't own it in an IRA. So, you know, I'm going to, from a tax point of view, I'm kind of stuck with it. But the other thing is when I when I hear Jason explain how Snowflake gives clients a chance to do a better job on their databases and Oracle Oracle resisted going to the cloud. Now if you pick up an Oracle quarterly report or annual report, they they call everything cloud based revenue. So they're trying to catch up, but they're definitely in a catch up mode. Anything else to add, Jason or Mike, on Oracle? I would say they're they're actually being quite successful in that. They they've leapt over IBM as the fourth largest cloud provider now. Um, but Oracle is really playing in a niche where they're you know they're offering cloud based databases instead of you know the the vast range of services that AWS provides. Um, well, that's some comfort. 
I just want to close by saying, and Mike got into this, and Jason's certainly familiar with it, but when you look at, I mean, I understand the R&D. You have to, you know, upgrade your programs all the time, and that takes people and people with expertise, and 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 you don't want, you know, you're, you know, it's just part of being in business. But the thing that strikes me looking across these columns, and, and it's totally unfair to compare the others to Microsoft. Microsoft has 200 billion of revenues and 22 million of sales expense. Salesforce has 32 billion of revenues, which as Mike and Jason say, is remarkable that they've been able to build that base of business, but $13 billion of sales revenue. So in other words, you know, I don't know, 40% of sales is, I mean, 40% of revenues is sales. Snowflake, now it's growing 30% a year. I understand that they were deploying sales capability or salespeople to, to try to maintain that growth rate, but 2 billion of revenues and a billion of sales expense. Oracle, which I think has been more disciplined. I mean, I, I'm kind of horrified by the debt level, but having been a stockholder for a number of years, they are pretty disciplined. And there they have 46 billion of revenues and 9 billion of sales. I, uh, what, what I'm concerned about, and, and this is from the person that's never sent an email or a text or whatnot, what I'm concerned about, so I'm happy, very, very fortunate to have Mike and Jason involved. What I'm concerned about is some part of that sales expense is kind of keeping the customer happy and and really ought to be considered to be a cost of, you know, just like any other cost. But we're not going to be able to sell that this afternoon, this evening, in, in, in Mike's case, in London. And, you know, whenever we're on <clears throat> software companies, and I promise we will come back to software companies as we explore these different different industry groupings, we'll we'll get back to it. You know, it, it, that that to me is is an issue. But I think uh, Mike and Jason are right. The founder at Salesforce definitely has good leadership capability, and if anyone can take take their 32 billion of revenues or 50 billion in three years' time and turn it into say 10 billion of free cash flow, I would say it's the founder. And with that, everyone stay well and stay healthy. Uh, we'll be on next Wednesday and uh, let us know anything we can do to expedite getting the pages uh, to you because we will be organizing future sessions around the pages. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information 
and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.